Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to the Wintering Sessions. I've already tried to record this intro once. I normally take you outside for a little walk, but today it is raining incessantly and it's grey. And I took the dog with me and she frankly objected. She did not want to go for a walk today. And so my recording was interspersed with her growling at other dogs as we passed, which was a bit embarrassing. She gets so wet, bless her, she's really woolly. (laughs) And then, you know, joggers ran past and cars came past. and (sighs) So I stopped the recording and I've come back home. Sometimes you need a quiet afternoon anyway. You might be able to hear the washing machine running in the background, I don't know. I've lit some candles all over the house because that cold grey light can be so hard to endure sometimes. It makes you really miserable. And I learned in Sweden a couple of weeks ago where I was launching the Swedish version of wintering that the warmth of candlelight on a grey afternoon does a lot of work. So that's what I've done here. And I've actually had builders in the house all week. They have been restoring my bathroom floor, which unfortunately crumbled and collapsed because there was a leak under the toilet. Not very glamorous, but nevertheless true. So there's been people in my house all week and it's just exhausting. I'm so antisocial. I'm really used to my own time and space. I don't like it. So I'm tired and I'm grouchy. 
And I'm nevertheless delighted to tell you (laughs) that we have Megan O'Rourke on the podcast this week talking about her really striking, maybe even life-changing for some people, book, The Invisible Kingdom. As Megan will tell you, The Invisible Kingdom is all about invisible chronic illness. And when we say invisible, we don't mean invisible to anyone that's looking. We mean invisible to society. And that's because it's often undiagnosable. Megan has a really specific story that's really interesting that I, you know, we'll go into in the podcast. But I know loads of people who listen will relate to that. And I did too. That sense of knowing that something's wrong and not being able to get any acknowledgement or help and certainly not treatment for that. And we talked a lot about fatigue. I have suffered from serious fatigue at many points in my life. It's really common for autistic people. And I do a lot of work now to stave it off. And it's quite interesting to me sometimes that I forget to make that effort. Like I begin to take it for granted that I'm not tired and forget that that's because I have loads of stuff in place. And when that happens, it visits me really quickly and it visits me in ways that really surprise me, you know. And this week it really has. And things go for me, like I lose the sort of power of speech. I begin to feel like my words are disappearing, like my mouth doesn't want to move. And when I do speak, I can't finish a sentence. I can't find words, which as you can imagine is really unusual for me. Like I'm a person who lives by words. And I've been going to bed at like nine o'clock, being absolutely shattered and various other things. Anyway, it's really boring hearing people talk about being tired, but I don't think we have a grasp on tiredness in this society. Not a common one anyway. And we tend to see it as shameful and as like a a failure of energy somehow, like you can marshal your own energy. And we confuse it with laziness, of course, inevitably, because we always find a way to blame people for the worst aspects of their experience. But I think so many of us will be able to relate through various life experiences. And I think one of the things that's making loads of us tired this week, this month, is the global situation that's unfolding around us, the terrible war on Ukraine, the way that after many, many years of watching the news anxiously, we found another thing that renews that fear and terror and sense that our vigilance is required. So if you're feeling that this week, I'm sending love. It's okay. You're allowed to feel what you feel. You're not betraying anyone. You're not taking up unnecessary space. Take a rest. You don't have to watch forever. And have a little listen to me and Megan talking about what it means to feel like you are so truly exhausted you can't go on. And also how she found a way through that. I think you'll really enjoy it. Take care. I'll see you the other side. (music) 
Megan, welcome. Thank you for um, appearing. No, not appearing. Appearing is the wrong word, isn't it? Speaking to me today. <laughs> appearing is too grand a thing. I don't think I'm ready for the kind of YouTube channel yet. That seems a bit more visible than I'd prefer. <laughs> Well, I'm so happy to be here. And I I was privileged to receive a proof copy of your new book, The Invisible Kingdom. Um, And I think, I mean, we share a publisher, but I think they sneakily knew that I was going to relate hard to it because it's about... (laughs) chronic illness but also it's about the the battles that we have to have our illness seen and then once it's seen to to have it solved because you know we have the expectation that we can be well again I suppose yeah 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 Yeah. right we want um we have a lot of tidy narratives of recovery right Mm. and it's harder for us to think about and talk about um, what it's like to be changed permanently right but not in a not in a narrative way that brings a mm. you know happy ending necessarily yeah not not necessarily a change that you kind of desire okay. so right. let's set the scene here because when was it that you began to realize that you were not a well person well you know as it turns out Catherine, this is one of the hardest questions to answer yes <laughs> yeah. i say i say in my book um that I got sick gradually and then suddenly, um, which is Mm. the way that Hemingway describes going broke. (laughs) Um, Very similar. (laughs) Right. There was something similar about it. So in this very strange way, I had small things happen to me all my life, right? Um, Mm. But what I can say is that in the months after my mother died in, um, she died in Christmas Day of 2008. So in 2009, just started to feel really off, really tired all the time Mm. and started seeing doctors in a more active way, looking for answers. And then in 2011, traveled to Vietnam, got a very strange rash on my uh, arm and came home with a fever and really never recovered. So at that point, there was this kind of precipice that I fell off of. So mm-hmm. at that point, entering a true roller coaster of ups and downs, at which point it was, you know, extremely obvious I was sick. So mm-hmm. I describe it in the book as kind of someone walking slowly into water, right? Without, who doesn't know how to swim and you're sort of getting deeper and deeper and you know you're moving in, but you're not quite sure, you know. And then all of a sudden the the, the, the land kind of drops out from under your feet. And that's what it felt like was, yeah. um, you know, am I sick or am I just, yeah. you know, does everyone feel this way or is something really wrong? Yeah. Is this what mm-hmm. age feels like? Yeah. Is this what aging? <laughs> I remember being on Facebook of all things and my former boss, it was this period in Facebook where um, everyone would kind of link various apps. And so he had his like running app linked to his account and he would say like, so-and-so just ran 7.35 miles today in a time of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, how, I remember I had the thought how can he run that far? You know, in your 30s, you mm. just stop being able to do anything. And so that was, that I think gives a sense of how I acclimated to my illness without knowing yeah. that I was ill um, until until I felt Because the, the individual symptoms are not necessarily like groundbreaking in terms of thinking, oh, this is definitely a serious illness. You know, their, their tiredness, their, you know, just feeling off and and aches and that that kind of thing. It's not like a a big lump somewhere or something like that that would tell you that something is seriously awry. So you just kind of roll them into everyday life and keep thinking they're normal for a while. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So if so many of our illness stories start with the dramatic finding, right, of a mm-hmm. lump, of a scan, of a fall, um, mine was more that, you know, beginning in my 20s, I started having strange neurological symptoms that would come and go, like a lot of vertigo. I was tired, periodically just incredibly tired. Um, I had night sweats. I had hives. I had, you know, as I say in the book, all these quote unquote small things. Um, I had brain fog periodically. I was sometimes very, very tired. But the nature of my symptoms, exactly as you're saying, where they were systemic, right, and they roamed my body, they also kind of came and went, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a consistent every day this happened. It would kind of seemed to come to a head. I would feel really unwell. I would go to the doctor. My labs would look, you know, as it turns out, not perfect, but the doctors didn't really tell me that. From their perspective, right. they looked yeah. pretty good, except I was anemic and I had this one autoimmune marker. But, you know, I think it was a real challenge for doctors because I showed up and I was in my 20s. I was running. I had a job. I was an editor at The New Yorker. I had a really mm-hmm. busy life. And they would say, well, you're probably stressed, you know, and they were very kind. I think I was quite lucky, but they would say, you know, maybe you need to, maybe, you know, meditation, let go of anxiety, you know, kind of learn to live with stress a little more, make sure you get more sleep, you know, and it's not like I was living a life where I rested all the time. So I thought, okay, I'm just like in my (laughs) twenties and not taking care of myself. But, you know, periodically I would say to my, my then boyfriend and now partner, you know, is this how everyone feels? And I would mm-hmm. Google autoimmune diseases. So I had this, right. It was, it was a quite amorphous experience. And it was really, yeah. I always say to um, actually my writing students that life hands you all these things that actually are quite interesting writing problems too. And I think that the <laughs> writer in me just thought, okay, this is subjectivity, right? This is, yeah. this is actually maybe how everyone else feels. And maybe I'm just a little more sensitive about it. It's so hard to unpick because there's so many different narratives that fall into place about women who are sick. And I think particularly kind of bright young women, there's there's this kind of assumption that we're a bit neurotic, um, that we're overdoing it, that we're burning the candle at both ends, that we're over-introspecting and, you know, over-interpreting, that we're spending too much time on Google looking up, you know, random symptoms that, that actually are nothing were you believed? Were you treated with like respect and dignity? Or did you feel that people were making assumptions about what you were saying? Well, look, I, <laughs> you know, in retrospect, know that I had various um, medical conditions that are pretty verifiable at this point, and that I had them for 15 years before anyone really searched for them. Right. So I would say that my doctors were, you know, incredibly kind. I really did have nice doctors. Mm. But I, I say in the book, I don't believe that they believed me in the sense that I would go in and I would offer a kind of testimony. Here's what's going on. Here's what I'm feeling. And the answer always came back with a set of labs that looked close to normal and a kind of, you know, you're probably stressed, right? And yeah. I think 
The reason for that is exactly as you say, which is that the stereotype of the sickly woman whose you know disease is strictly psychological is one we really live with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I say in the book that it's you know a truth universally acknowledged among the chronically ill that if you're a young woman in possession of vague symptoms like fatigue and pain, <laughs> you're going to be searching for a doctor to, who believes you're actually sick, right? Um, yeah. And there's a lot of data to back up what you're saying, which is mm. um, that women, especially younger women, overwhelmingly are labeled hypochondriacs in yes. early stages of illnesses. And actually, in particular, with these systemic roaming diseases like autoimmune disease, diseases that are hard to measure, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's pain, whether it's something like long COVID that we don't understand very well, whether it's an autoimmune disease, migraines, these diseases that are hard to measure, medicine really struggles with figuring out how to credit the testimony of patients who have them. And it's mm-hmm. like, if you're a young woman with that, you're really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, and, I've, and- I've been through this particular mill twice in my life. I um, I had two bouts of like really debilitating illness in my teens and then in my mid-20s. And I know really so well the kind of reception you get when you take that into a stressed doctor's office, you know? Yeah, exactly. And like you, I kind of had the the doubts and the kind of the, the weary, like sighing, oh, well, I suppose we could call it ME, which was the first label I got. Mm-hmm. And then the second label was fibromyalgia. But both mm-hmm. times, both doctors said, well, we don't really know what it is, but we'll give it this label because then, you know, you'll feel happier kind of thing. Like it, right. was, like it was this emotional need oh. of mine rather than me being, you know, in terrible pain and exhausted and unable to to function on a day-to-day basis. And like for Ugh. me, both times they passed uh, after a couple of years, but the impact on my life was huge. And and actually the shame, I think, is the enduring take home for me that, you know, I was ashamed that I could become so sick at such a young age. I think it it felt like a failure. And then the kind of shame that I felt having taken that to medical professionals who couldn't see it on one of their metrics and therefore found it a bit tedious. You know, they, they couldn't take action. And so they they didn't find it at all interesting. Oh, there's so much in what you just said. And first, I'm so sorry that you went through it because I really <laughs> know firsthand what that's like. You'll, you'll mm. maybe laugh at this, but I remember a doctor finally just saying, well, okay, let's just say you have a chronic fatigue-like yes. syndrome. <laughs> yes. He wouldn't even say chronic fatigue syndrome. He was like, chronic fatigue-like syndrome. Okay, and that's just oh, what it wow. is. And I can't really, really help generous. you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's very like, withholding of him. You really don't care. Um, but there's so much I want to linger on for a second in what you just said. Mm. I mean, first you talked about going into a stressed doctor's office, right? And Mm. one thing I try to do in the book is really point to the system, right? Because I I think that it's um, so easy to be frustrated with individual doctors, and and certainly I was at, at various points. But we do have, and I think the same is true in the UK, these healthcare, modern healthcare systems that are 
set up for acute care, right? And not for chronic illness care. Doctors don't have time. They're really mired in bureaucratic paperwork. Mm. Um, In estates, at least, they're really worried about like lawsuits and saying things like, I don't know to patients is kind of verboten. (laughs) Um, So you're absolutely right that, that a key part of the context is you're walking into a stressed person's very busy day and you have an unsolvable and actually Mm. maybe unnameable problem because you're living at the edge of medical knowledge, right? And that's just, I think for doctors, you're right. They they lose interest because it's hard probably to be the expert who suddenly doesn't have expertise, Mm. right? And who also all the pressures of bureaucracy are militating against your being able to sit and offer care and empathy, so there's that. Yeah, and you know? I, I think also they, they get a lot of people through their office who maybe aren't sick. I mean, I you know, and, yeah. and that makes them, that drains the, the sympathy and empathy from yeah. their practice. Yeah. There's, I, there's so many things, but of course we're sitting here sympathising with people who didn't necessarily sympathise with, with us. us. I know, <laughs> which is ironic, right? But that's why which we're is writers, generous, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> that's part of what makes us writers. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly, well, you know, I found really odd. And I have to say, and I will say, I still find it quite odd that, and in some ways I think it's helpful to refresh the oddness in our minds of Mm. a system in which a sick person walks into the very place that's supposed to offer care and is met with a shrug and disbelief. You know, I sometimes, to try to get people to feel the oddness of that, I sometimes Mm. say, you know, imagine that you walked into a restaurant, a highly regarded restaurant, and you sat down and you said, I think I'd like the steak tonight. And the waiter says, hmm, and then goes back. And then the chef comes out and says, are you sure? I don't think you do want the steak. There's no evidence here that you actually want the steak. You, in fact, look like a person who wants, you know, the salad. Um, it's really interesting, actually, that we are in a system, and it doesn't have to be this way, where the patient's testimony is almost invaluable. I mean, almost not Mm. valued at all, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is not how medicine always worked. So that's one of the things I try to I try to get at uh, a little bit in my book. Um, But but you also talked about shame. And I I wanted to go back to that too, because you really hit the nail on the head. I felt so much shame. And I tried to talk about this in the book, just about what it's like in an experiential way, what the lived experience of having, you know, a poorly understood illness really is beyond, you know, the pain and the brain fog and the fatigue. There's just you know, as anyone who's struggled with a chronic condition knows, you're putting so much effort into surviving and getting by. And yet the world isn't validating and recognizing that. And so it's you who ends up internalizing a sense of shame and vulnerability. You know, it's just so ironic to me that it's the sick person who ends up feeling like she's wrong somehow. Yeah. And it's not just the, it's just not the illness that gets you in the end. It's the isolation and the uh, the sense of falling out of the whole of life and not being relevant yeah. to anyone and not being comprehensible to anyone. You know, like when you talk about being exhausted or, or fatigue as the kind of medical term is, like mm-hmm. that means something very different to people like you and I than it does to somebody who hasn't experienced weapons grade fatigue that just drains 
everything out of you in a few moments and, and kind of renders you completely incapable. Absolutely. We, we definitely need a different language. You know, Virginia Woolf talks about this so brilliantly in her, her now long ago essay on being ill, where she says, you know, when you fall in love, you have Shakespeare and Keats's words, right, to kind of articulate your, <laughs> your feelings. But if you get a headache, you go to the doctor's office, there's nothing in literature to kind of, you know, support, uh, you know, to, to kind of arm you. Um, and it really is amazing that the very symptoms that characterize um, the kind of illnesses that you're, you and I are talking about, ME, fibromyalgia. In my case, I ended up being diagnosed with Lyme disease that had gone untreated mm-hmm. and also um, a genetic condition called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. But the symptoms that most characterize these often are fa- what we call fatigue and brain fog, which, as you say, if you haven't experienced them, those words mean nothing, right? You yeah. think, oh, I've had yeah. a little brain fog when I was hungover. Well, you know, <laughs> imagine <laughs> that multiplied and then unrelenting, right? And yeah. And then as you say fatigue, it was not fatigue. Fatigue is, I'm tired, I need to sleep, right? Or I just ran 20 miles and my body is exhausted. This was like, and I wonder if you felt this too. I mean, I just remember having this image that I would wake up in the morning and it was like my body had turned to sand and I had to kind of hold all the sand together through some effort of will, right? That my my very cells were just not functioning anymore. Exactly. Mm, as you say. Totally and, relate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, as you say, it's, it's incredibly lonely. I felt really, really lonely in it. And the more that the irony was that the moments when I actually tried to, you know, broach that and to breach the loneliness, to, to say it to another person, I felt worse. That was yeah. when I felt shame. When I reached yeah. out, was when I then felt the most shame, which would just send me into this further cycle of loneliness. And I don't know if that was just me. <laughs> it's so grim. Yes, I know. It's you so know, well. <laughs> <laughs> or whether it was because it was just invisible and there was no way to make it legible. And really, that's why I wrote the book, right? Was that I was like, I have yes. to somehow make this invisible problem visible. Mm. And how were you surviving through all this? I mean, were you yeah. able to make a living? I mean, I you like one of the kind of, I don't know, the long-term effects for me was the inability to make a living, like dropping out of a career that I trained for, that I was unable to perform yeah. anymore. And again, like the long-term shame that came from that, the sense of yeah. like financial incompetence. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I racked up quite a lot of credit card debt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, me too, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, um, it's funny because people will say, you seemed fine and you were writing this and doing that. And so I was both lucky and unlucky. I was lucky in that I had left a career working as an editor and I had started basically adjunct teaching, which I think is in a sense, maybe what you were doing, but I was, you know, I'd had these like one year contracts. It was a little better than adjuncting in that I had a real contract and I would have healthcare but it was these visiting positions mostly um, at universities near me. And I really loved teaching. It was great. But when I got super sick, it became almost impossible um, mm. to teach. And so part of the shame was that, that I would go, I would try to talk about poetry with my students. And it was, again, like dredging words up from the muck yeah. and just thinking, you know, I remember at one point saying, you know, we were reading a, a poem about spring and I was like, we're talking today about, and I couldn't think of the word spring, <laughs> season, it comes after fall, there are flowers. My students were like, spring? <laughs> yes. 
You're like, well done. You guessed so, my, my clues. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know if they experienced that as like a form of pedagogy or, or what. But, you know, the, the thing that was lucky, and I was talking about this with a, another friend who suffered from untreated Lyme disease. I, you know, I didn't have a job where I was on my feet every day, right? I had a job mm. I could go, I could teach. I remember I would take the train home from Princeton and I would pass out because I had exerted all my energy yeah. and I would have a crash afterward as, as many people do with these kinds of illnesses where if you exert yourself, you have a kind of post-exertional crash. Mm-hmm. And I would just, I would be so conked out that like the, the conductor would have to wake me up at Penn Station and say, okay, we're here, you have to go. <laughs> you know, and then I would just hide for three days. So in the world, it seemed like I was still functioning. Yeah. But basically I was making these increasingly tiny forays into the world and then recovering for an entire week, right? So yeah, it had a huge impact on, mm. you know, my last book came out my last nonfiction book came out in 2011 and this is coming out in 2022. And a reason for that is that I was really, really sick. Right. And it, it, there was a long period of, um, there was a period where I think the hardest part, and I wonder if I hear this and what you're saying too, Mm. was that not only was this what I had trained for, but writing was my entire identity. Right. And it was how I cope with (laughs) challenges. So when my mother was sick, I wrote, right? I wrote poems, I wrote prose. And now suddenly I was facing this really enormous challenge. And what I precisely could not do was write because cognitively I was not there. So because actually, I mean, although it looks like we sit around all day, like writing is right. huge cognitive effort. It's tiring. Oh, yeah. No. And I mean, and it just wasn't there. So there was a period mm. where I told myself, okay, you can write one line of poetry a day. Right. And, you know, and I did actually in my last book of poems, which came out a couple of years ago, you'll see like a lot of it is written as like one line, almost like mm. um, aphorisms that are disconnected from others. Because that was really all I could, all I could do at the time. So, wow. So that was actually one way I knew I was getting better was when I got treated for Lyme disease. Eventually I took antibiotics and it was, you know, an up and down process, but suddenly I could start writing paragraphs and I started writing this book and I thought, okay, something has changed. Um, so yeah, I, it's a real, a real challenge, you know, and I'm really worried, you know, right now about the COVID, you know, COVID-19 and Mm. the, tremendous number of people who are being left with long-term effects from from this virus. And what that really means, you know, I don't don't think we've really absorbed what that will mean for our society and for individuals, because that level of dysfunction is hidden currently in our society and it's huge. Yeah. Mm. And and are we going to support those people, right? I mean, you and I struggled alone with this burden. And even now we're talking about it in terms of, you know, I don't know about you, but I still struggle yes. with yeah. what happened and still on an ongoing way as if it's my burden, right? My story, my problem. Mm. One thing I try to really argue in the book is that this is actually society's problem, right? And that the loneliness I felt was society's pathology, that we don't know how to credit the testimony of those who don't have highly visible, highly measurable illnesses, that we are really uncomfortable with chronic illness, right? We want our illness narratives to be you know, kind of either, you know, you get sick, you battle cancer and you recover, or 
Or we even kind of like the stories of death in which there's a kind of spiritual, you know, succumbing. There's the sense of an ending, you know, and and chronic illness is never ending and it it doesn't change. It's it's a repeated cycle that doesn't look much different from one month to the next. And, And I think... You know, it's narratively boring. If you right, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and 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 I think that boredom translates into, you know, the the health profession. I think they think, oh, here comes that person again with right. exactly the same unsolvable nonsense. Frankly, right, right. That I don't even know if it's real, and I'm worried I'll be made a fool yeah. of if I believe them, and then it turns yeah. out to be fake. Right. Yeah. Right. There's the the combination of. I do think that we the. Right. It never goes away is a real Mm. problem. There's this incredible quote by um, a psychologist, or maybe he's a psychiatrist, T.F. Maine, where he, I'm going to try to pull it up here, but he talks, he just says it, you know, uh, he says the best kind of patient is one who from great suffering and danger of life or sanity responds quickly to a treatment that interests his doctor (laughs) and thereafter remains completely well. It's like Mm. you and I were the opposite kind of patient. We did not respond quickly to a treatment and we did not interest (laughs) our doctors or remain well. (laughs) And and I think I would add to that, having been, and I'm guessing the same is true for you, like having been quite a model student at school, like the kind of person who did respond quickly to everything and learnt their lessons and progressed, like I I took it as a particular insult. Like I felt like I was not the kind of person who didn't respond to this stuff, actually. Like I was a progress maker. That's Mm. so interesting that you that you said this, because I think I don't quite come out and say this in the book, but I feel like one reason I wrote the book too was as a kind of apology to all of those whom I hadn't believed. (laughs) Right? Before I got really sick. I remember a friend of mine's mother had um, MECFS, chronic fatigue fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis when I was, you know, I was in high school. She was quite sick. And I just thought, you know, why didn't she sort of perk up and just get out there, right? Um, I really (laughs) didn't understand, right? I mean, the (laughs) solipsism of the 15-year-old who's a good student and still has energy. And I think... Part of the sting of getting sick was that I was like, wait, this isn't supposed to happen to me. Well, what what was I thinking? What was I talking about? Right. So it was an incredibly Mm. humanizing experience for me. And in that sense, the experience of getting sick really, really changed me in ways that I can identify, which is that it, it completely altered the way I thought about other people's testimony and other people's subjectivity. And it was really Mm. humbling to just realize kind of how clueless I had been, but also to have that moment of going to the doctor and just being like, no, you're supposed to believe me. I'm, you know, someone who's excelled. I'm credible. And And I know this is something that a lot of, I've interviewed a number of patients and so many people talk to me about really trying to present themselves as credible, Mm. right, to their doctors and how much emotional labor went into that. And there's a funny moment in the book, funny to me in a dark way, where (laughs) I finally saw this like really top tier rheumatologist who had taken months and months to get an appointment with. And he met with me. He was so nice. They asked me a million questions. They took everything quite seriously. And then he's like, okay, I don't think you have an autoimmune disease. I'm going to narrate your case. And he started recording his patient notes in front of me. In front of you? Oh, my God. (laughs) He began by saying, patient in her mid-30s with a pleasing affect, 
Oh, and I was, and, and well, Catherine, my response in the moment, shameful as it is, was that I was like, thank God he thinks I have a pleasing affect. I mean, it was so Still got it. Right? I was like, yes. Oh my God, and it was hideous. only months later that I thought, wow, you know, that's part of the complexity mm. here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Those, those narratives are not neutral. I'm just interrupting you for a moment to ask if you'd consider subscribing to my Patreon. Friends of the Wintering Sessions get an extended edition of the podcast a day early, the chance to put questions to my guests, a monthly bonus episode and exclusive discounts on my courses and events. Most of all, you help to keep the podcast running. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Catherine May. Do take a look. Now back to the show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to like go into treatment because one mm-hmm. of the things that that really clarified some thinking for me in your book that in such a such a kind of revelatory and helpful way was the way you talked about that process of seeking what whatever more kind of eccentric and unfounded treatments and mm-hmm. how from the mm-hmm. outside that might look and how from the inside that was motivated. I, I wonder if we can talk about that a bit because I totally recognise that pathway as a person that sees themselves as like rational and evidence-based mm-hmm. but ran out of options within that paradigm very quickly. Yeah. So I try to characterise myself and my family in the book by just noting, you know, I come from this family of Irish-American baby boomers, basically, mm-hmm. who, you know, had full faith in... Um, not just medicine, but in experts, right? They're really of that generation, my parents, where authorities had authority, right? Authority figures had authority. And you really Mm -hmm. didn't question, I mean, you questioned political authority. Yeah, sure. (laughs) But you didn't question medical authority. And so I think that was part of why it took me so long to acknowledge to myself that I was sick, Um, Because I just, I had Mm. really unquestioning faith in my doctors. And I thought, well, if they say nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. So it was only as, you know, a 
my life truly was falling apart, right? I couldn't walk around the block. I failed to recognize a colleague whom I'd known for 10 years. I just had no idea who this person was. I couldn't, I knew I knew him, but I was like, why is he in the car with me? I mean, just truly extreme experiences that made it very clear. I was quite sick. And as I went from doctor's office to doctor's office, and as I read more and more, and as I joined patient groups on the internet, right, often maligned, but in my case, I found them very, very helpful. Incredibly necessary if you're isolated, yeah. They're totally crucial, right? Mm. As I educated myself, I realized that I really was someone who clearly was at the edge of medical knowledge. And what I further realized was that medicine, as distinct from science, um, but medicine as a practice, is necessarily conservative, right? Yeah. It is evidence-based. And as we are seeing in the pandemic illustrated around us, to the frustration of many, it is a slow halting process of starts and stops to acquire that knowledge, right? And some things are believed that turn out to be wrong. Well, that doesn't mean science doesn't work. That's science, right? Science is the process of acquiring and refining knowledge and self-correction. But what was really clear to me was that doctors, just conventional Western doctors, were just not set up to help me as I became increasingly desperate, right? To just... Not even at that point, you know, this is now, if I kind of got really sick in 2011, this is now like 2013, I'm even sicker than ever. I've been on this Mm -hmm. roller coaster now for years. You know, at that point, I turned to all kinds of alternative um, and integrative modalities from acupuncture to... (laughs) Hmm. versions of what Donald Trump suggested coronavirus patients do of Uh like injecting. You didn't know that at the time. (laughs) I I did not put bleach in my veins, but I did do this ozone and ultraviolet light therapy that, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, does not credited by Western medicine, right? I tried all kinds of things. I tried diets. I tried colloidal silver. I mean, I really just, at a certain point, I made what I still think was a very rational calculation <laughs> that's mm, often is, portrayed as credulous, yeah, right? Yeah. And I just realized I'm so sick. My life is pretty much gone, which it was. Yeah. Um, I need to try things in an experimental way and I have to experiment on myself. And, you know, I say in the book, I wish I could skip parts of that story because I did mm. put myself in the hands of some people I really didn't trust. And I let them do things that I was desperate. And I did do things with doctors that, in retrospect, I think, well, I should have listened to that distrust, you know, regardless yeah. of whether the treatments work, just that voice, you know, not being... But I don't see that as a sign that I was credulous. I see that as a sign that I was desperate, right? Yeah. And yeah. there was and a kind of reason. You'd run out of choices. Yeah. I'd run out of options. Something I try to get at in the book that I think is really complicated and it's really hard for us to have a kind of collective mm. discourse around is that, you know, a key tenet of conventional Western medicine is fixing. An acute problem that gets yes. fixed, right? And a permanent prob- cure, yeah, right. one-off treatment. Right. That, yeah, yeah. And one thing you really need as a chronically ill patient is actual care, right? Mm. And actual help getting through your day. 
and actual recognition of the illness. And there's a huge amount of data that shows that empathy and interpersonal warmth and care and validation have just almost eerie effects on people's health. Being believed, being named, being seen. Being believed and touch and beauty. I mean, that these things really actually matter in a material way to Mm. a person's health. And so for me, something like acupuncture, you know, I had a wonderful acupuncturist whom I trusted, you know, not only is their data suggesting it really helps, but just the very ritualistic experience of going to visit her, having her care so much, right? And having her touch my wrist and take my pulse and show interest and believe me, Mm. had such a profound effect on my ability to persevere, you know, separate from what other other corporeal effects it had, let's say. So I just wanted to sort of say that. And it's really hard for us to talk about that. I think that often gets left out of the discourse of like evidence-based medicine is that, you know, again, when you're chronically ill, you need a way of living too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was something I really responded to in the book because actually it clarified for me some of the things that I've tried out that I may be a bit embarrassed to have tried out <laughs> in the past out of yeah. sheer desperation, you know. And yeah, I mean, like, because yeah. I finally got my autism diagnosis when I was 39 ish, I can't remember. Um, wow. After mm-hmm. like a whole lifetime of, you know, and, and the exhaustion that I'd experienced was like now looks just dead like autistic burnout that other autistic people suffer from and that isn't yeah. spoken about and is really common within my community. But it has no like validated place in mainstream medicine. And it's it because it hasn't been researched yet because it's not interesting to researchers. And that's the only reason it doesn't exist in the literature. That's so interesting. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, really? Whoa. Yeah. But yeah. but definitely, like, I'd done some fairly eccentric things to try and sort out my weird mental health before then, because I, there was nothing that made an account of it for me in mainstream medicine or psychiatry. And I'd gone back and back and back and, and, you know, been rebuffed, actually, and told that I was, you know, probably a bit hysterical. Like, what am I worrying about? You know, Um, and I'd had other practitioners saying to me, you must have been abused and you can't remember it. Like literally coming out loud (gasps) with that because otherwise I made no sense to them. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I tried some stuff that was in retrospect weird and embarrassing, but which really just reflected the the desperation I felt to to be well and to be like stable, to feel stable and feel like I was understandable as a person. And mm-hmm. I, yeah, we, we don't talk about that stuff very much, mm. but it's a key part of experience. Do you, I was, I was thinking about the practitioners that you saw, like, do you feel like they were acting in good faith or do you think they knew that their treatments weren't effective. How does that ecosystem run? You mean among the non-conventional practitioners, the the alternative? Yeah, and the ones that you ended up not trusting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's such an interesting question. I think that just as in conventional medicine, there is a true spectrum of good faith to actual bad faith actors in some cases, right? I mean, not hopefully too many. The same is true in alternative medicine, right? It's What's different is that we don't have a system 
of double-blind placebo-based trials to kind of check those Mm -hmm. things. And we don't have insurance companies necessarily kind of overseeing and regulating, you know. So I think I saw a range of people. It's impossible for me to know. The person I really distrusted was someone who seemed to need me to need him. Right. Yeah, we <laughs> you know what I mean? like that. <laughs> that uh-huh. and he just seemed to need me to be really sick, right? And and right. that that I just that I just have an instinctual aversion to, I think. Mm-hmm. But why and was he really in bad faith or what his who knows, right? I, I really don't know. But but certainly I can say there were an enormous number of um what are called integrative doctors. And also nutritionists and acupuncturists who truly transformed my health and my relationship to my own illness narrative, right? I credit them with kind of giving me the tools to think of my body, not like a car that had different parts that were separately breaking down (laughs) and needed to be fixed. And actually not as a very sick person, not that I was just somehow sickly. I had started to think, okay, I'm just sickly, something's wrong. Sickly, yeah, which is such a loaded term and and, yeah, unpacks so many meanings, yeah. Right. And actually so many of them were like, no, you, your body is under stress from an infection and it has done untold things that are affecting different parts of your body and that's all connected. And while we may never either identify that infection or be able to get rid of it, we can support you as you try to have a life worth living, right? And so mm-hmm. I thought that was, it sounds so obvious now, Catherine, but it was yeah, so no, illuminating and yeah. transformative to experience that. And so I do take that as this profound act of good faith. And, mm-hmm. you know, I thought a lot about, and I didn't end up doing this in the book, but I try, I sort of allude to it, but there's a chapter about alternative medicine and why people turn to it and what. And I really thought about, and I would still love to write this piece or have someone write this piece, kind of how could we, I don't know, you don't, alternative medicine works on its own terms. It's much more based on an individual personalized idea of medicine, which I think is so important for these kinds of systemic illnesses. I I don't think you can subject acupuncture to the same kind of clinical trials that you can subject a pharmaceutical drug. That's the whole point. But I did wonder if there could, you know, if if part of what would help us embrace the positive aspects of integrative and alternative medicine was just more transparency somehow about relative risk of different things, right? That there could be like a rating system. Anyway, this is a conversation for another time, but it's a way of saying- A really interesting one though. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's really important that that we embrace a more holistic- personalized approach to medicine. I do think conventional medicine will go in that direction. I think it's going to have to um, because of everything we're learning about the genome and genetics. But yeah, uh, yeah. But I think also like one of the things that we've maybe lost in our discourse around medicine at the moment is this, the kind of entreaties that we used to have really commonly to recuperate, to rest, to, you know, to stay in bed for a while. I mean, I think... 
a lot of doctors still think we're doing that and we're not maybe, you know, we're rushing back to work and therefore we're not healing properly and things like that. Yeah. And I, yeah, we need to bring that conversation back in that says, no, actually my expectation is that you're laying on the sofa watching movies for the next two weeks, not that yes. you're fiddling about with your laptop, trying to, you know, trying to do some work and, and making everything a lot worse. And I, I don't think we say it out loud, but I actually think the expectation is probably there. Absolutely. Well, maybe and it's I think, not, I don't know. No, <laughs> I don't Catherine, know. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, this was something I connected to so much in your book, Wintering, and I, it was actually really helpful to read it at a the particular moment I read it, which was, you know, I was recovering from the sickness and my kids were sick and I, Omicron yeah. was here and I was like, oh, I've just got to like get it all done somehow. And then I was like, no, I don't. I can just sit here and say, this is horrible. It's just yes. exhausting. Yes. <laughs> it's been two years of the pandemic. And, yeah. you know, um, what you're saying is so important. And it's so important in this moment where, as you and I have said, long COVID is um, a major societal risk because the nature of these illnesses is that if you try to push through it, and what I mean by these illnesses are these systemic illnesses, care, mm -hmm. often infection associated, right? Where the body is desperately trying to come back to homeostasis, either because there's still an infection there or because your immune system is continuing to react to a perceived infection or for whatever yeah. reason. Um, one of the things that actually helps you get better is resting. And one thing I thought a lot about in my book is, and one thing I argue in the book, is that these mm. illnesses, autoimmune disease, fibromyalgia, are kind of the signature disease of our time because yes. they're precisely exacerbated by late capitalism, right? Mm. Not a phrase I try to use in a jargony way, but really to actually get at the sense of, my husband kept being like, you should take that word out. It's sort of jargony. But I was like, no, it's actually really important, <laughs> right? Because we are all tethered to our, our devices and to our jobs and yeah. to one another. And, you know, in the 19th century, a very different pace meant that you could be quite sick and maybe mm. you were the, you know, I keep thinking of like the aunt upstairs in Proust or the, you know, yes. my great aunt was very sick and she just kind of always had a room where she would rest and it was okay. I mean, she was in the 20th century, but, you know, it wasn't as hard to be sick. I think it's really hard to be sick in the 21st century mm. because... And to have it truly acknowledged in its full extent, I think. Yeah, yeah. there's no yeah. social safety net. And then also there's just this relentless narrative of pushing through it and of recovery and of, you know, if you push through it, you'll get better, right? And we know that that model actually doesn't work for MECFS or for many patients with long COVID. You actually I mean, does it work for anything? Like, show does me it work for anything? It does well, work one wonders, for. right? Yeah. Apparently it works for like cardiac rehab. <laughs> okay, good. Well, no, I mean, I, I talked to a doctor and he's like, no, it really does work for cardiac rehab and, you know, <laughs> broken bones, but it really doesn't work Excellent. for these systemic illnesses. It really doesn't. Yeah. yeah. And I question, like you, of course, I... My whole book about grief, which was my previous book, is sort of the same argument, really. I just repeat mm -hmm. myself. It was like, right, we, we, yeah, we, all we don't just muscle. Yeah. Right? We, we, we need to take more time. But yeah. we really do. And, um, and it's worth asking what fear motivates and what desire to occlude, right? What are we hiding mm. when we, or what are we not wanting to look at when we encourage ourselves to endlessly press forward? 
Yeah. Right? Because I think it is fear that's behind that need oh, to absolutely. endlessly push onward. Yeah. 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 And I think that one of the moments that I loved in your book was when you were finally offered like the the antibiotic treatment that was clearly the kind of medically researched solution <laughs> to your problem. And your first instinct was to, to you know, demur really, to, to sort of say, oh, yeah. I, I'm not sure about that at all. Where were you by then that, that made you feel that way? I had seen, so I had finally gotten a diagnosis of tick-borne illness. My doctor had said, look, I really, you really have evidence of having Lyme disease and another tick-borne illness. I'm going to give you antibiotics and really should make you better. I had seen so many doctors who had at that point said, oh, I think you have, you know, a thyroid problem, which I did have, and that's going to make you better. Well, it did make me a little better. Or I think you have this virus and doing this is going to make you better. That I had just become skeptical. I had begun to see that every person I saw saw my condition through their own lens. And I was worried that this person who treated a lot of Lyme patients would just have said to me, no matter what, that I had Lyme disease. I don't actually think that's the case that he would have. I really trust him. He's a very careful, he's very careful about that. He does a lot of work to differentiate the different signs and symptoms and lab results. And he had spent hours looking at five years of lab results, but that was my fear. I also had really absorbed the idea that a kind of toxic modernity was making me sick, Um, including, you know, a processed Western diet, a a history of taking antibiotics, which had disrupted my gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. I had done a lot of research into the microbiome. And this was at a moment where the microbiome wasn't kind of everywhere, you know, in the U.S. now, you know, hear about the microbiome. Uh, Basically, every other advertisement is about, you know, probiotics (laughs) and microbiome. But at the time, it really wasn't there yet. But I had Mm -hmm. been very persuaded that the microbiome is at the core of our health. And in fact, that's something I talk about a lot in the book as I've now talked to a lot of researchers who are really at the cutting edge of microbiome. And it's really clear, right, that healthy microbiome is just profoundly important. So I felt, oh God, I've just done all this work to, you know, drink a lot of chicken broth. And I went from being vegetarian to a meat eater just to like heal my gut and have a better (laughs) microbiome or what, you know, in my case, that's what it seemed like it took. And and I'm now just going to take antibiotics with no clear evidence that it's going to work. And that was really scary for me. I think also, Catherine, I was probably scared to find out that I didn't have a tick-borne illness, right? I was probably scared that I was going to hope that it would work Mm. and then it wouldn't. I couldn't face that that cycle of hope again. Right. I think I could not face hope at that Mm. point, which still makes me sad. Um, And I still feel that a little bit, you know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But I have to, yeah, I have to say my husband, who's really rational minded and very kind of unemotional about these things was just like, well, this is very illogical. (laughs) You've done far weirder things. I think you should just take the antibiotics. You can always drink some bone broth again later. And so, (laughs) and so with his, with his very unemotional encouragement, I thought, okay, there's a logic to that. I can do that. And then within five days, it was clear 
that the antibiotics were working. And I went from being bedridden to being able to take a three-mile run. You know, I was not breaking any land records, but it was just an undeniable change. And yeah. since I'd been offered so many solutions before I, that hadn't worked, I didn't believe that it could possibly be placebo. You know, it's incredible. Because um, you get into this cycle of second guessing everything, right? So anytime something oh, yeah. happened, I would think, well, is this placebo or is this real or is this, you know, just the yeah. natural ebb and flow of illness? But this was just a thing apart. It was really clear. Mm, um, but it means that I then found myself being in the position of being this kind of evidence based person with. Lyme disease that I don't have a CDC positive for, you know, Center for Disease Control positive yeah. for. I have these amorphous test results. So I'm now, Catherine, that person who goes to doctors and says, I have late stage Lyme disease that hasn't been fully eradicated. And I'm put in the position of being, mm-hmm. by virtue of a condition that I'm pretty sure is real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am in the position of being, you know, someone on the margins. Um, so you still sound like you know, big scarecrows, mm-hmm. one of those people, basically, yeah. to, to certain practitioners. Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I always have to decide, do I out myself to this person, to this doctor, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, and I had a doctor clearly kind of flip on me recently where I said one thing too many and she just sort of went, mm. Mm. And it was a doctor I really liked. <laughs> oh, my. I'm not sure. <laughs> oh, you should try telling able... people you're autistic, seriously. That, <laughs> that flips people very yeah. quickly. Does it? Mm. Oh. Oh, and yes. when you were talking people, earlier... Yeah. I'm curious. I do have one question for you, which is when you were talking (laughs) earlier about the burden and the fatigue and the trying different treatments, Mm. was it partly the need for finding a narrative for yourself that was exhausting? Yeah. Yeah. An account of yourself. Because like, you know, when I was growing up, there was no possibility that I'd have ever got an autism diagnosis when I was a child yeah. because actually most people thought that autism was only something that affected boys, you know, like boys, it, it really, exactly. and, and, you know, like I was like, you know, from a working class family, we didn't have access to private, you know, assessments, which is the only way that people, that, that girls and women got, you know, an assessment for a long time. And there was nothing in culture that would have pointed us in that direction either. And so like loads of young women, I grew up like thinking I was literally an alien, like literally considering Mm. whether I I was the same kind of human being as other people, because my responses to everything felt so profoundly different. And I could tell, and it was, you know, a bit like, you know, you'll understand this. I couldn't get it across to people how strongly... I was convinced yes. that I was different and I was. And, you know, I, yeah. I was of a different neurotype, but I didn't have a way to make yeah. an account of that. So I always thought I was just a bit broken. Yeah. And learning I was autistic, just honestly, I mean, it wasn't immediate. It's not like it's a sort of magic bullet, but it let me make and build a different narrative about myself. And it let me meet yeah. my own needs in a way that I wasn't doing before. And that narrative is everything. And I think the people that scoff at that just haven't experienced it yet. The the need to be believed and understood. Oh, Mm. absolutely. A thousand percent. I remember a friend said to me early on, why are you in search of a diagnosis? You know, sometimes diagnoses are just restrictive and categorizing. And I thought about it a lot. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, diagnosis has 
the word, the Greek word to know built into it. And I think what I hear and what you're saying, what I relate to is that, you know, a, a diagnosis isn't the end of a condition, right? And it's not yeah. the full parameters of it, but it is a tool, I think, for building a narrative of your own. Yeah. And it's actually mm-hmm. quite freeing in that way because you start to be able to make yourself legible to other people. Yeah. And it turns out that to be sick, certainly, is not an individual experience. It's a social experience, right? That that your sickness needs to be reflected back. In my case, I'm not talking about being autistic. I'm saying my no, own No, no, but it's, it's exactly the same. You it's know. exactly the same. Yeah. But you just, you need, we need, we need social recognition of our differences, for sure. Yeah. And the first time yeah. I kind of went online and said, I'm autistic. And a couple of my followers said, oh, that's funny. I am too. Oh, and that wow. was the start of a thing for me. Like I yeah. got, like yeah. actually yeah. meeting other people who were just like yeah. me and whose responses were exactly the same to the world was, right. it was, it was like this unleashing of magic. Honestly, I, I, it, I can't state it strongly enough how. I totally connect yeah. to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, Megan, I could talk to you forever. Thank you. Oh, this I has know. Been such a great conversation. <laughs> thank you so much. Oh, really thank patient. you so much for having me. It's been I just such want to keep pleasure. talking. <laughs> I know. Well, hopefully, we'll get to do it again, Catherine. I really hope. Oh, so. yeah. I really hope so. Yeah, I'm sure we will yeah. actually. And like, yeah, yes. it's it's really it's such an important message and such a lovely book. So congratulations on it. It's not long till it comes you out. So now. much. <laughs> yeah, very soon. All exciting. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. I've been doing a bit of light cooking this afternoon. I've actually made some chips. I love making homemade chips. It's one of those really pointless things to do. I should say for American listeners, I mean fries. (laughs) I won't ever stop calling them chips. And I've also made some custard, a baked custard for our pudding tonight. And I'm about to make a pavlova for lunch tomorrow. It's something I always do when I'm tired is I cook, just gentle kind of pottering cooking, nothing too frantic. If I've got some time though, it's something that I find really relaxing and refreshing. It doesn't demand too much of me as long as I'm feeling up to standing and it feels like an act of nurture to other people around me and I love cooking. I love handling food. I love the ingredients. I love tasting it all the way. So I've had a good afternoon. I think one of the things that struck me listening to this conversation, well, two things really, I suppose. One is how we often see people making desperate decisions about their health without really appreciating why they have to do that. You know, some of the things that Megan did seem a little bit deranged and maybe dangerous. Certainly not full of the medical proof that, you know, we'd ideally like to follow. But when you're in that position, you get desperate. And I think so many people are quietly desperate. And it's really worth tuning into that. But the other thing that strikes me is how often I'm part of a system that says, you know, get out, you know, walk around a bit, feel some fresh air. And I know, 
how often that's been really difficult for me to do for various reasons. And I always try to make sure I balance that. But I do think we need to think about whether the way we talk about wellness, the way we talk about good mental health, the way we talk about self-care, however you want to name it, really, and the way we talk about nature and the value of nature, whether that's intersectional enough, whether we're thinking hard enough about what it's like to bring a sick body into the world and how we can still reap some of those benefits without expecting people to be able to do everything that a fit and well person can do. I think COVID is going to make us all reflect on that a bit more. hope it will. Anyway, we're certainly going to see more people with long-term illness in our society. And if we're getting it right, we will be finding ways to help and accommodate them. But I think it starts with all of us, really. All of us paying attention to what the people we know are going through and whether it's invisible. Ah, I quite enjoyed being able to talk about that, actually. (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to my producer, Body Peace. Thank you to Megan Hutchins, who puts everything together. Thank you so much to my Patreons or patrons. I still haven't worked that out. I will do one day. Who just bring so much love and enthusiasm into this project, as well as helping keep it running. I hope some of you will consider joining too. It's a really fun community. And I've got some ideas for the future too that we'll be developing soon, so that's great. And thank you to you all for listening. Take loads of care, won't you? Wrap up warm against this spring cold and look after yourselves. I'll see you very soon. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.